1: Hi, I'm Bernard Pascal and you're listening to Sorry Partner.
2: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Egyptian champion Bernard Pascal about his love of conventions, how finding a bridge club when you're living abroad can make you feel at home, and about structural inequities in the bridge world between players from developed countries and those from emerging economies. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz.
3: Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you, Catherine? Jocelyn, I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. What's been going on?
2: Well, it's interesting. I wanted to talk to you about something that I've noticed that's been happening with me at the table, and I suspect it's not an unfamiliar feeling for bridge players. It's the idea of being fearful of various contracts. I know when I first started playing, I was quite afraid of bidding slams. You know, when I was what I would think of as a beginner and maybe a low-level intermediate, the idea of bidding a slam was a big deal. And, you know, I'd get quite tense if I was in that auction at the table or that situation. Now, of course, slams are whatevs, you know, I, I'm I'm quite relaxed about bidding slams. I enjoy it, you know, usually because you're not there unless there's a good chance you should be there. And often the auction's quite interesting. So I just don't have that anxiety about it anymore. But what I've realized is I have developed this real anxiety about bidding low-level contracts.
3: You've mentioned this, and it's so weird. I've seen you do amazing things, and then you'll always point out, see, I went down in two
2: spades. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's because I'm becoming so much more mindful of the traps and pitfalls in those kinds of auctions in a way that I hadn't been previously. You know, I think as a newer player or as a, as a less experienced player, the idea of playing, you know, at the one level or the two level, it was like, oh, yeah, that's the easy part. And now I realize, no, that's actually quite a difficult part of, you know, the metaphor I have is that idea of walking downstairs. And the minute you try and look where you're walking, you suddenly, that's when you trip. And I think it's a little bit of that too, because I've just got this really heightened awareness of it. But I was curious if you have a similar feeling about any kind of contract or auction, and also if it's shifted over the course of your playing
3: life. Well, I completely can relate to the, uh, I guess I would say the adrenaline rush that I used to get when I went near a slam. Yeah. And very often I would get so hyper that I couldn't remember how black would work. (laughs) And I would forget how to count my key cards and throw the whole thing off. And if partner had shown the one or four or the three or zero, I would assume that they had to have the higher one and I would bid too much. And this happened a lot. And I definitely don't get so hyper and out of control in a key card auction anymore. I've definitely noticed that. I guess I'm a little fearful of when you open two, no Trump, and it goes pass, 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 and you have <laughs> yeah. to play two, no Trump, opposite crap. <laughs> I get pretty scared about those contracts. On the other hand, I love to defend them. So, you know, (laughs) yeah. I think when I was less experienced, I was generally afraid of no Trump. I liked playing in a Trump contract. Uh, It felt more secure. I don't have that issue anymore. Yeah.
2: Well, this is so interesting because I think this feeds into why I feel an anxiety about lower level suit contracts, because I've always enjoyed playing no Trump. So much more than a Trump contract. And I do remember, you know, this was probably a couple of years ago now, sitting opposite a partner who had to play One No Trump, which, of course, everybody hates. (laughs) And um, she was like, oh, you know, I hate No Trump. And I just was sitting there thinking, no, no, to me, (laughs) No Trump is, is a much more comfortable place. And I think it probably speaks to the way my mind works versus your mind in terms of strength and just the ways that we conceptualize hands and organized material probably has something to do with why we are more comfortable Mm -hmm. in different Mm -hmm. styles of contracts. But that's quite funny to me that that you are more comfortable in a suit contract, because I do think you play your suit contracts really well. It's
3: very nice to watch. Uh, Well, thank you. But thank you for putting me in that six no Trump contract today, (laughs) which I did not mind at all. It was quite fun. And I didn't need a cross ruff, so even better.
2: (laughs) So, Jocelyn, a lot of podcasts would probably have some kind of endorsement or advertising at this spot.
3: Yes, but not us.
2: Not us. Not us. (laughs) But we'd love to have some support because it's the two of us toiling away in the dark caves of our office bringing this merriment to you week after week. (laughs) We've had some great letters from people, and we know people are enjoying the show, but really it would be so helpful if people could donate. So how do people become part of the team? Well, the
3: best way is through our Patreon page. It's really easy. If you Google Sorry Partner Podcast Patreon, and that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, You will find the link or you can find the link in our show notes. And where are the show notes? So the show notes are the details about the episode. If you are listening on your phone or your tablet Mm -hmm. or in an app, you just click on the episode and you scroll down and you see more information about the show as well as the links, including the support this show. Fantastic. We hope to hear from you and then
2: we'll be able to say support for Sorry Partner comes from listeners like you. And we're back. So we have a couple of letters, Jocelyn, on this theme of being afraid of no Trump contracts. Oh. Kindred spirits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our first letter is from Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And she contacted us on Instagram. And um, just to tell our listeners, you can send us messages on Instagram. So feel free to do that if you're more comfortable or a voice message. We always like those. Anyway, Elizabeth writes, good morning. I love listening to your show. Oh, we love hearing that. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Elizabeth. That's so nice of you to write to us. She says, I started playing 25 years ago. I can't remember hands from last week, but I remember a hand from one of my first club duplicate games. We were playing in no trump. A spade was led. We were still having lessons and I didn't know how to play it. I lost the first five spades. I had four diamonds, so I thought I could afford to throw a diamond, then another diamond. Then the opponent switched to the diamond and came through my queen, so I didn't get any diamond tricks either. It went from bad to worse. I lost all 13 tricks. <laughs> oh, no. These people were good players and never played a club. It's taken me 25 years to get over my fear of no Trump. <laughs> and then she said, I love listening when your guests tell when things went wrong for them. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. It? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I must say, I quite enjoyed that too. We were trying to get them to share a few more of those experiences The schlamazels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the (laughs) Schlamozzles. Thanks for writing, Liz. Our next letter is from Stephen in Pennsylvania. He writes, Catherine and Jocelyn, I have a story I'd like to share with you. A number of years ago, I was mentoring a good friend of mine. I'll call her Mary in order to protect the innocent. At the time, Mary had a real phobia about opening One No Trump if her hand contained a small doubleton. She wasn't very confident about her ability to play No Trump with a wide-open suit. We talked about this at length, but she was still reluctant to open One No Trump when she should. One day at the local club, Mary was the dealer. She sorted her hand, looked at the bidding box, shrugged her shoulders, resorted her hand, looked at the bidding box somewhat more dejectedly than the first time and started to re-sort her hand again. (laughs) It's not going to (laughs) change. At this point, I knew exactly what was going on. I took the alert strip out of my bidding box, tapped the table with it and announced, alert! Our opponents, a husband and wife pair I've played against for years, looked at me with some bewilderment and asked, why are you alerting? Nobody has bid anything. (laughs) reasonable (laughs) yeah i replied mary has a one no trump opener with a small doubleton and she's trying to find something else to bid that won't get her criticized later (laughs) mary (laughs) smiled somewhat sheepishly and put out the one no trump card i transferred to my five card major mary scored up 140 for an average result and we all had a good laugh Mary is now opening One Note Trump when she
3: should and enjoying it much more. <laughs> Steven. <laughs> Especially when her partner transfers her out of No Trump. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's great. I'm sure Mary realizes by now that just because you open One Note Trump doesn't mean that's where you're going to play. <laughs> and just because you don't open One Note Trump, Doesn't mean that's not where you're going (laughs) to (laughs) end. So if you have any good stories about phobias about certain opening bids or phobias about certain contracts or perhaps some cause for schadenfreude, then please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram, or send us a voice message. All these links are in the show notes and on our website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Bernard Pascal. Egyptian champion Bernard Pascal has represented Egypt at the World Series Championships, the European Transnational Championships, and the World Team Championships. He has been a member of the World Bridge Federation Executive Council since 2009. And he has been the President and World Bridge Federation Delegate of the Africa Zonal Conference since his first election in 2009. We began by asking what he loves most about the game.
1: What I love most about Bridge is the logic not only of the systems but of the bidding, but also the logic of the hand play and the defense. And there are so many situations where only logic can save you. Logic, pure logic. (laughs) (laughs) And who is your partner? He is uh, a a guy called Hani Dagger. Dagger is D-A-G-H-E-R. He's one of the best players in Egypt. He has played internationally for many, many, many years. And uh, he's really a, a real star.
2: And what would he say is your greatest strength when it comes to your game and your partnership?
1: What would he say my greatest strength is? Systems. Systems. Yes.
2: And what would he say is maybe an area of your game he'd like you to work a little harder on?
1: Ah, that's interesting. The hand play and sometimes the defence as well. And do you agree with him? I agree fully, fully.
3: Do you feel like you've always been more into the bidding or stronger at the bidding?
1: Absolutely. All my life. All my life. Yes. 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 Do
3: you think people fall into one or the other camp or do you think that's just you and maybe... No. Uh,
1: the the real big stars are strong in both areas. Yes. Uh, but below the big stars, I think people are like me. I mean, they... Uh, They are either very good at systems or very good at card play. You know, uh, that's my opinion.
2: So do you have to force yourself to concentrate on these other areas?
1: Of course, of course, of course. I am trying, I'm trying. But you see, my opinion is that uh, because I started to play bridge, serious bridge, uh, late in my life, there are things that... uh, will never be like if I had started when I was 10 or 12 or 15. In fact, one of my favorite questions when I meet big stars is to ask him the question about when did they start playing. And you would be surprised. More than 90% of these stars have started at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. And there is no mystery. If you start early, you know, and my partner, for example, did not start early. He started maybe at the age of 19 or 20, but he was a big poker player. And so he had the cards in the blood. In my family, for example, uh, nobody played cards. So it makes a big difference. So how did you start? Uh, I started, uh, I was uh, playing a card game, which is very popular in Egypt, called estimation. And it is something a, a real mini, mini, mini bridge, and you play it individually. You don't play it with a partner. And I started this when I was maybe 18 or 19. And then I met a guy who, uh, who was playing bridge in a club, and he taught me not the real principles of bridge. He taught me just uh, how to be, you trump all the time. <laughs> and uh, so I did not start on real sound grounds. I really, so I went to buy a book. Who was that by? Five card major in in French. Cinquième majeur. And I think it was Michel Lebel. Michel Lebel who who wrote it. So I started with this book, you know. And and maybe this is why I always loved systems. Because I loved the logic of the system. And if I had done the same with card play and defense, I would be a different guy today.
2: (laughs) But are you reading those books now, trying to catch up? Or how are you working on it?
1: Yes, but there is a big difference when you are 18 and when you are at my age, and I will not say my age, <laughs> things do not enter your brain or, or are not printed on your hard disk in the same way.
2: Just going back to when you pivoted from estimation to bridge, yes. what happened? Why did you decide to take up learning
1: bridge? Because I loved, I loved what I was seeing. I mean, this uh, friend of mine, his name was Manoli and he was the half brother of Demis and you he used to go to the same club I went to and he was playing uh, uh, these rudiment of bridge. Anyhow, I liked the game. And...
2: But you went with him to the bridge club just to watch?
1: No, it was a club with uh, many other uh, sports and things.
2: Oh, I see. So you were there.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And I liked the cards game in general uh, because I had started with estimation. So I went to to kibitz him. And slowly, slowly, uh, he, he invited me to join them, and I started to join them. And then, at that time, what I did was, after I bought that book, I went to see my current partner, who was a friend of mine at the time, where well, he's always been a friend of mine. I went to tell him, look, I have discovered a new game, which is fantastic. So he asked me to teach him this game or to show him what is this game about. And I showed him everything, I gave him the book, and then we started playing together. But of course, we did not have any idea about the real finesses of that game in terms of card play and defense and all this. So we were just playing like this with some logic, but uh, not enough and without a teacher. And that's bad.
3: So just in context, when was this? Was this in your early
1: 20s? Yes. I mean, uh, we we must have been uh, twenty twenty one,
3: And did you? Did you then get a teacher
1: or a mentor or a coach? Uh, no, never, never. And that's, and that's my problem. My partner did something different. I mean, after that, of course, I after university, I went to work. I started to work. I was working for a multinational company, so I started traveling with them. I stopped bridge, uh, which I never really started seriously. And I stopped bridge, and I came back to bridge at the age of 32 or 33 when I was in one of the countries in Africa. Uh, But my partner, he continued, and he, he, he bought a lot of books, and that's why he became a very, very good player, a star player.
2: You're on the Executive Council of the World Bridge Federation, and you're the president of the African Zonal Conference. Correct. How did you go from being this young man interested in bridge to such a key figure in the
1: bridge world? Because I have always loved bridge. I made a lot of friends through bridge. Uh, I used to work for a multinational company, working from a country. I mean, uh, spending three years in a country, four years in a country. You know, they were moving me from a country to another. And in every country, the first thing I used to do is to go and find the bridge club. And there were small bridge clubs in all these countries, in Africa. Uh, So I loved Africa. I love the friends I made in, uh, in bridge in Africa. And then um, I went in my last posting in sub-Saharan Africa. This was in Ivory Coast. In addition to my work, I used to run three evenings per week, a club, a bridge club. Uh, it was a bridge club inside the tennis club. So I used to, I used to run it. And uh, then I used to organize uh, regional championships, in West Africa and Central Africa, and then I met a number of people who were at the World Bridge Federation then, and slowly, slowly, you know, um, uh, when I came to Egypt, which was uh, my last posting, uh, and this was back in 2003, a few years later, the uh, Egyptian uh, Federation asked me if I could represent them at the African Bridge Federation, so I welcomed the idea because, again, I love bridge, I love the world of bridge, the communities of bridge. So I accepted and um, I was uh, named the vice president of the African Federation. And four years later, I was elected as president of the uh, Zonal Conference, which we call the Zone A,
0: which is Africa.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: So when you're at the World Bridge Federation meetings, what are some of the issues that pertain particularly to Africa?
1: I think that Africa being in the third world, like many other areas of the world, nationally bridge organizations have little means, very little means. And uh, apart from South Africa, where we have a reasonable, good-sized bridge community, all the other bridge communities in Africa are very, very small. The bridge game is not well known. So therefore, if you don't have finances, then you cannot really do big things with it. So these are the majority of our problems, I mean, uh, that we discuss. We had... uh, A few years ago, we had Botswana, Botswana, which is close to South Africa. They started, there are some people who were living there who started the bridge. They started to teach some young students and slowly, slowly, they formed a community of 800 young people. This was an excellent experience. But again, because of the means, they are not even able to contribute with what they should contribute with financially to the African British Federation. And I have a feeling that now the motivation has dropped compared to a few years ago, and this is really the problem in general of the third world, you see. And this is different, of course, from the problems that we have at the World British Federation or that uh, Europe or the U.S. have.
2: Do you feel that you're having to fight this battle on your own? Are these issues understood when you're talking to other members of the executive at the World Bridge Federation?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They know. They know very well. But see, uh, this is how the world works or or functions, you know. I mean, people who have money, it's different from people who don't have money. Mm. For example, one of the big problems that we have is that because the cost of uh, participating in the World Championships is expensive for the third world, therefore, when, uh, you know, Zone 8, for example, has two seeds in each category for the Bermuda Bowl, the Venice Cup, etc., the Dorsey Bowl, etc. But sometimes, and even very, very often, there are teams, although they are qualified to participate in the World Championship, they withdraw because they don't have the finances to travel and to pay for the entry fees and all these things. And some other times what happens is that, uh, unfortunately, uh, and this happens, for example, in Egypt, we. We are not able to send the best players in Egypt because we have sponsors, and even sponsors is a big, big word. It's in fact, it's a, a number of players who who individually can afford to pay their travel and their entry to the World Championship, who are allowed to travel because others, the good ones, they don't have the means to uh, to pay for that. Right? You see, uh, so therefore, at the end of the day. The rich countries uh, have more seeds because when, for example, an African team withdraws, the seed goes immediately to Europe, for example. So they have more, more teams and also the best players, where we have less teams and not the best players. These are the problems we face.
3: That sounds really unfortunate and a big hurdle for you guys.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah. It
2: yeah. Is. Are there any initiatives in place on a formal structural level at the World Bridge Federation level to try and address some of these inequities in the bridge community?
1: Unfortunately, not. I mean, uh, there is very little that the World Bridge Federation does for all these poor countries and poor national bridge organizations. And in fact, I have been on the World Bridge Federation board since 2009 and uh, we have been discussing at the board many many issues but we have never really addressed what the future should be what the vision for the future should be what the strategies for the future should be in order to make bridge become a real shining fast and growing mind sports and uh, this is why i have uh, prepared a paper uh, recently that I will be sharing with the future president of the World Federation, because as you know, in the months of August, you are going to elect the new president who will uh, start on January the 1st next year. So um, I'm, I'm going to share a paper with them, with all the members of the board, uh, which talk about the future. And uh, my ambition is to have the future and the vision and the strategies discussed on the board and do something different. We are declining. Our numbers are declining. I don't have precise statistics, but according to my fellow board members, uh, the average age of all the bridge players who are registered in National Bridge Federations in the world, the average has now is now beyond 70.
2: Wow. It sounds like the World Bridge Federation might need a new committee to focus directly on some of these solutions and to implement some initiatives to try and correct some of these issues. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to talk about the future. We we must talk about what our vision is for the next 15 years. And that's why my paper, my paper is called Horizon 2037, because I want to know where are we going to be in 2037? And what should we do from now in order to achieve what I want there.
2: Well, if our listeners have some interesting ideas, email them to us and we will forward them. Though, of course, Bernard's contact details are online so you can write to him too. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favourite tournament that you like to play?
1: Honestly, I like playing bridge all the time, but my favourite has always been and will continue to be to represent Egypt uh, at the Bermuda Bowl. And I did that once in Lyon. It was in 2017. And uh, it was a great experience. And we almost qualified in the first eight. And we were sixth or seventh until the last, the last encounter. And then during the last encounter, New Zealand made a fantastic result against Brazil on another table. And uh, we uh, lost a little bit to Bulgaria. And we became ninths. <laughs> so we miss the the qualifications.
3: Oh. Wow. Oh that's yeah. too bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: And after a tournament, how do you like to unwind?
1: Uh, what I usually do, what I like to do, but it doesn't always happen, is to go and have dinner with my partner, my uh, my other friends, and discuss the boards. <laughs> <laughs> bridge, bridge, and more bridge. <laughs> yes, and more bridge, because there are some boards which annoy me a lot, and we need to go and understand what, where was the mistake, who did the mistake, and uh, how can we avoid doing this mistake next time. And next time could be seven years later because the same war doesn't ever happen again. (laughs) This is true.
2: Who makes more mistakes? Is it you or is it your partner?
1: I make more mistakes.
2: (laughs) Very good. Very diplomatic answer.
1: No, it's not a diplomatic answer. It's an honest answer.
3: (laughs) 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 And what is the biggest mistake or what we call a schlamazel that you've ever made at the table?
1: I mean, you know, when I heard that question being asked before, and I cannot, honestly, I cannot remember a big, huge mistake. I can remember something which, for example, in Lyon eliminated us, but it it was not really me, but it doesn't matter. It's my pair, and I respect the pair. I mean, uh, the the board that blew us up completely was a board, an interesting board. Uh, I think it was uh, board number 11 or 12 against Bulgaria in that last game. And my partner had told me that uh, he had two golden rules. When he overcalls one major opening with the two minor, he must have at least six cards and an opening hand. He said, that's the first gold rule. And the second golden rule is when he makes a reverse, he must have 18 points, not less. Okay, fine. So here comes that board. The Bulgarian opponent on my left opens one heart. My partner beats two diamonds. Yes, six. My right-hand opponent say pass. And look at my hand. I had ace, king, queen seven times in spades. I had ace, jack of heart. I had jack third in diamonds. And the queen of club, singleton. So that's a... a, a when When you hear that your partner has six cards in diamonds and an opening hand what what are you what are you thinking about with this hand? <laughs> it is either six or seven diamonds, yeah, so I beat two spades which is forcing natural, and the Bulgarian who opened one heart beats three hearts now, so he has six or seven hearts, and my partner pass pass again on my right, and I say. Four hearts pass on my left, and my partner says five diamonds. So I say, My partner really is uh, is uh, discouraging me. So I beat six diamonds, not seven. And I and I, and I feared that the sugar there wouldn't be seven. So six diamonds is doubled, and at the end, my partner overcalled one heart with ace, king, queen of diamonds, fourth. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we, it was double to double three, and I can't, can't remember now. And uh, and this eliminated us completely from uh, the qualification. <laughs> so, you see, my partner had an idea. He had the idea that with this king, reinforcing diamonds, he would give me the leads. That was his idea. He wanted to give me the lead immediately. But of course, he never imagined that I would have a monster. <laughs> and. <laughs> So that's the story. The golden yeah.
3: rule, and how seriously does he hold the golden rule these days?
1: <laughs> well, he always laughs when I remind him this, but this is not <laughs> my current partner. It was another one. So that's the, the one one of the uh, unforgettable disasters.
3: That's a, that is <laughs>
1: yeah yeah.
3: If you could assemble your dream team of bridge players, living or dad, who would they be?
1: Oh, of course. First of all, I would play with my current partner because uh, he's a friend of mine since our youth and uh, we love each other. So that's the first thing. But uh, otherwise we would choose. I don't know. There are so many excellent pairs currently, you know, Uh, I have a particular affinity with Italians. So uh, I would, I would take uh, an Italian pair, for example, like uh, Versace, uh, Dubois. Uh, and I've seen them play together recently, by the way. And and then probably uh, a, an excellent French pair as well because I also have many affinities with, uh, with French. And uh, so that's what I would like, I would make as a team, yeah.
2: What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you were playing bridge?
1: The funniest thing which happened to me, not, it was not a real bridge, a funny story, but it was in, in a bridge uh, club, the, the the bridge club that I was running in Ivory Coast. Uh, one day, we had a smoking section, non-smoking section, but it was separated by a closed door. And I was running the tournament, and all of a sudden, I hear a lot of noise and uh, people shouting. So I go to the non-smoking room, and I see... Two guys who were friends of mine who were partners, one punching the other button, <laughs> <gasps> and there was blood flow on, on the shirt of the other one <laughs> and this is just because uh, you know, as usual, they misunderstanding in the bidding, and then one guy responded badly or you know to the other one and then this is how it started and i I, I was I looked at them and said, are you mad? You are 45 or 50 years old at the time and you are punching each other? I can't believe this. <laughs> so what happened? What happened? I mean, we had to, uh, how do you say, to expulse them from the from the tournament. And then uh, we had to take a decision at the board of that club to uh, suspend them for a period of time. And that's all. Well, what can you do? <laughs> Did
2: anyone need to go
3: to the hospital?
1: No, no, no. No, fortunately not. <laughs> but it was funny.
3: But do you know what
1: brought that fight on? What provoked it? No, I cannot remember the details of the story, but I know that it was a, a misunderstanding at the table. One guy made, a, a of course, a, a nasty remark to the other. And then, of course, the other one responded badly. And, you know, <laughs> it happens. <laughs>
2: Regarding books, in addition to Michelle Labelle's books, are there any other books that you found particularly instructive in your bridge
1: career? Oh, yes, of course. I have read many books of uh, Eddie Cantar and The Bridge in the Ménagerie, you know, and many other writers. I mean, there are so many. And I was always, of course, because it's me, I was always particularly interested in bidding and systems.
3: Yeah. So of all the systems... That you've played. Do you have a particular convention or gadget that's near and dear to your heart?
1: I cannot say particular. You see, for example, in the in the system that we are working on currently, and it has been now a year since we started. We have inserted new gadgets, and uh, I will give you an example. For example, when you open one heart or one spade, and there is an overcall on your right, or on or your left, sorry. Then I use the of trump, uh, which means that I've got three or four cards in your uh, major. So you open one heart, two clubs over goal. I say Turo drum. This means I've either got three cards in your major and 10 points plus or uh, four cards and seven points plus. But you see the point, many bridge players play similar things. The thing with us is that we are now working on the continuation of the sequence, okay? So our system, for example, or our gadget will show over the relay, if my partner is interested to know what sort of hand I have, then he will beat three clubs. And then I will tell him now, if I had three cards and 10 plus, four cards and seven plus, and then if I have a singleton or if I have... Uh, a balanced hand, or, or or so. There are many things you see, uh, and and this is what interests us, my partner and myself, is to be able to continue the sequences. Not just say, oh, we play two or trump fit and three or four cards. That's not enough. All our gadgets are based on not only the start but the continuation. Where do you go? How do you describe more and better?
3: Are there any conventions that you? have played and decided you really hated them and you're never going to play those again?
1: No, I don't recall playing something. Uh, I am very flexible. So when I, for example, play with different partners and they they want to play certain gadgets or certain systems, I am very adaptable. So I I usually, I memorize well the systems and I play the systems to please them. Okay, and uh, yes, because it's important to please the partner.
2: There must be some that you are less of a fan of.
1: No, in fact, what I'm less of a fan of is to play without gadgets. <laughs> 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 uh, you see, because I I feel how do you say naked? Should we say <laughs> without systems? I, I cannot. I don't have tools to describe things, and it is very frustrating on the table.
3: And when you put your systems. When you set them on paper, do they look like an outline or do they look like
1: a flowchart or? I don't know, an outline. An outline. Yes, yes. yeah. I
3: love to make mine into flowcharts, but it takes too long sometimes. But it's really helpful to sort of to see.
1: Sure. Perhaps one day I will send you my system and you will convert it into (laughs) (laughs) flowcharts.
2: What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given?
1: Ah, that's, uh, that's a good point. And it is a very simple one. And which I only apply 50% of the time, and that's my problem, is count, count, count. Particularly when you're in defense. You see, the strength of my partner, for example, is that at the end of a BD, if we are on defense, as soon as we lead, and he sees the dummy, he knows twelve cards over thirteen in the declarer hand, and that's his strength. And then two tricks later, he knows the thirteen cards, <laughs> and this is because he counts, counts, counts very well. And this is something that I don't always do. I fall into laziness. I fall into mechanical bridge, and I hate myself when I do that. <laughs>
2: Bernard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Kathleen. And Jocelyn, thank you. It was a wonderful time spent with you. Thank you.
3: And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Bernard Pascal. Thank you also to our listener supporters who make the show possible. And a special shout out to friend of the show, Larry Cohen. Sorry Partner is produced by
2: Catherine Harris
3: with production assistance
2: from Paul Chirasso and Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and
3: produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at Podcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. These links and a link to our merch store are under the episode description in your app on the website at sorrypartner.com or wherever you like to listen we'd love to hear from you but be nice or we'll call the director until next week play well may all your
2: finesses be on side and remember as bernard says count count and count which i think was three (laughs) times (laughs) thank you partner (laughs)